think we're going to start. So time is very precious. Um, we really would like to welcome you all to another event of the Middle East Center. Uh, and uh, we will be delighted to see more of you in our events. We have an event almost uh, every week. Uh, tonight's event is really very special. Uh, it is for me because I uh, welcome an older friend, uh, Dr. Tarek Atel. Uh, we spent, I suppose, we, the last 20 years debating and thinking and reflecting and fighting about <laughs> the future of the part of the Arab of the world. And uh, today is also very special because, as you know, parliamentary elections took place in Jordan. And I really know no one as qualified as Tarek to uh, tell us about what's happening in Jordan and also to locate Jordan within the sweeping historical uh, popular uprisings uh, that have taken place uh, since 2011. Really, I'm not exaggerating to say that uh, Tarek is uh, Mr. Jordan uh, by excellence. Uh, I think, uh, again, he has spent a lifetime uh, studying and, and struggling and reflecting about life and politics uh, in Jordan. Uh, and I, I have debated uh, uh, countless hours in Amman, in, in Cairo, and in Beirut, in Damascus, um, and Oxford and London. Uh, I fundamentally disagree on many issues, but I do respect, I, I deeply respect his views as his insights uh, about Jordan. It's not just Tarek is a scholar uh, about Jordan. He comes from one of the most prominent political families uh, in Jordan. I mean, the most prominent. His uncle Waskital, as you know, was the Prime Minister of Jordan, one of the founding fathers of modern Jordan. Uh, his father uh, is Raywood Atel. Uh, I know some of you know Raywood Atel was one of the most leading political personalities in Jordan, even though Raywood was a very intense and very deep political man. He had connections to most political, social and political groups from the upper right throughout the left. And what I know about Jordan is comes from Muraywood, who basically took me on really lengthy rides all over uh, uh, Jordan over uh, the years. Uh, Tal also uh, did his PhD on the uh, social and economic roots of the monarchy of Jordan and Sanchez. And the book is coming out in the next few days by Calgrave. And my I think it's out there. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> and I think also it would be very misleading to say that just Park is a is a student of Jordan. Uh, I think uh, his research interests uh, transcend and go beyond Jordan. Uh, his basic research interests, uh, mainly on the question of the, uh, the comparative histories and politics of Arab monarchies. Relationship between imperialism, food security, and social forecast in the Middle East. And also, uh, Tariq has tremendous uh, theoretical interest in political economy and Marxism and what have you. Uh, currently, he is teaching uh, modern Middle Eastern politics and sociology at the American University in Beirut. He taught at the American University in Cairo and Manchester. And really, it gives me great pleasure to have Tariq back at the LSE. Please join me in welcoming Tariq to the LSE. Um, after that, I think I'm bound to disappoint you. And I'll start uh, by saying that I'm not actually going to say much about 
contemporary Jordan, certainly not about the elections, which I have not followed. Um, what I'm going to try to do is to provide a, um, a sketch of the historical sources of social power, which have bolstered the monarchy. And uh, maybe at the end, discuss why I think these have been eroding over the last two decades, and why the monarchy is not as resilient and stable as it used to be in, in, uh, in, in the period, say, of the 1950s and the 1960s. Now, my starting point, and here I must apologize because gremlins have removed one of two pictures which I was going to have. This is the second picture, and it probably shows what is the high point of the late King Hussein's career as a politician in Jordan. This is when he returned from uh, treatment for cancer in the Mayo Clinic of the United States in 1992, I think. And virtually a third of the population turned out to meet him. And the image which you see here of uh, Hussein's rule, of the incredibly popular figure who looms larger almost than his people, and the subject of mass popular adulation, is of course very different from the other image, which as I say, I have lost, but that you can find in such sources as uh, James Morris's uh, The Hashemite Kings. So the beleaguered king telling the world about the overthrown massacre of his cousins in Baghdad. And the general view at that point was that this man will not last. His regime will not last. They were, as James Morris puts it, kings in the age of republicanism. The uh, hangers-on of the British imperial power, which was in rapid retreat from the Middle East. Now, despite this, paradoxically, the king did survive. And there have been all kinds of view views of why he survived. And what I want to do is to look at the um, sources of the social power of the monarchy which allowed him to survive, to give a different view from that which is most current, which is a kind of view which argues that the uh, Sharif, the king, descended from the prophet, stands at the center of a broad pat, uh, constellation of political forces in Jordan, he stands above society and he's able to m manipulate this social mosaic to keep all the groups of it happy and to keep himself in absolute power. What I want to try to do is to draw on a new set of research about the social history of the East Bank. It's been going on for nearly two decades now. And this has shifted attention from the king to his people, from the high politics and the diplomacy of the Palestinian question to the internal dynamics of the East Bank looking at such things as the nature of the uh, merchant class which emerged under the mandate, the transformation of land tenures, the process by which the Bedouin were absorbed into the Arab region and the desert area pacified. What I will argue is that it's this process and the sources of support which were created under the mandate which best explain the resilience of the Jordanian regime. And in doing that, of course, what I'm going to do is depart from most of the conventional approaches to Jordanian politics. Now, the first of these I put down there is Husseinism. The LSE is responsible for some of this in the form of Nigel John Ashton's really very good, I think, international history. I think Hussein, a political life. It discusses Jordanian politics in terms of a lens of, uh, which focuses on the principal decision maker. Where the king gathers all power in his hands, and it's what he does that actually determines the stability and the, the um, 
persistence of the regime. And in particular, it's argued, uh, this argument took a textbook form at the hands of Alan uh, uh, Hudson in the 1970s, that the King Hussein's ability to survive one crisis after another in the 1950s or the 1960s gave him a kind of aura of power, and that this then consolidated his, his regime and allowed him to appear as the Zaim of the Jordanian uh, system right through the 70s and the 80s. So his success uh, as, as a monarch, the Machiavellian skills which he displayed in surmounting crisis after crisis that actually explained the endurance of this regime. And this, I think, is still a very popular view among journalists and among uh, most um, sort of casual writers upon Jordan, but it has important problems. And the most important for me is that despite the fact that King Hussein had undoubted charisma, a great deal of skill at manipulating Jordanian politics, he also took some very bad decisions. The worst of which, without doubt, was to go to war in June 1967 and to lose half of the kingdom, and then to allow the kingdom, more importantly, to slide into civil war in 1970-71. And if you look at the intimate history of the Civil War in 1970-71, it's quite clear that the king at certain points lost his nerve. And he was sustained by the institutions which underpinned the regime, the military, and the constellation of social forces which kept the military cohesive, rather than by his own skills. Now this, of course, has, has not been taken on by many other writers, and there are even Israeli uh, authors who write about uh, June 1967 as a brilliant piece of strategizing by the king where he draws Abdel Nasser into a losing war with the um, Israelis and therefore isolates and begins the end of the period of Arab Cold War and Revolution. And I think, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, uh, the, the difficulty of this argument is that it completely ignores the slide into civil war. It doesn't explain why an army which has lost the West Bank, largely because of the king's decisions, would then remain cohesive or loyal. Now, a slight variation in this kind of view comes from this idea of the trans elite national security establishment. Here, the ambit of the, the, the forces which sustain the regime widens slightly to a so-called trans elite. These are basically composed of what are called the king's men, the close advisors who staff his, the upper ranks of the bureaucracy, the palace, the gatekeepers who control who gets access to him, and a national security establishment, which on close uh, uh, examination turns out to be the top brass of the army and of the security forces. The problem with this argument for me is that it ignores a very fundamental divide in the elite, a divide which was particularly important in the period that I'm focusing upon, which is the 1950s and the 1960s, between people who are drawn from the rural notability of the East Bank two key prime ministers in this period who stabilized the regime as Zahid Majadi and Wasfitel are good examples, and the group of king's men who come to power under the mandate. Most of them have origins outside Jordan, particularly in Palestine, and they act as kind of collaborators to colonial rule. The, um, <coughs> the, 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 the problem is that there's not only a deep social divide between these two groups, but they have completely different politics. In fact, the politics of both Wasfitel and Hazza al-Bajali are in very many ways much closer to those of the Jordanian National Movement, the loose coalition of left and Marxist <coughs> forces which opposed Hashemite rule in the 1950s, than they are to the politics of these king's men, notably people like Samir al-Rifai. 
There are other kind of theories, all of which have a single common thread, which they draw on assumptions ultimately derived from functional anthropology and from modernization theory, which basically view East Bankers and the society on the East Bank as fragmented and politically inert, all the better for the king to manipulate it from above. And they ignore important strands of oppositional politics which have always existed among the East Bankers, which had to be contained by a very particular political economy. And it's this political economy which I want to try to examine. So I'm going to use, I'll leave the theory mostly for the, um, for the discussion, but I want to use a kind of model of social control. I would argue that the traditional views of Jordanian politics focus mostly on this bottom area, the process where the king shows skill in co-opting various factions of the elite, various kinds of notables, uh, increasingly transnationalized entrepreneurs as the economy is integrated into kind of circuits of capitalism and petrol money emerging from the Gulf. And he also acts to segment the population through various institutional devices. Most obviously, you have communitarian electoral roles. Voting in Jordan has always been aligned along lines determined by religion, whether you're Sunni, Muslim, or Christian, and ethnicity, whether you are a Circassian or an Arab, as well as a special category, an invented ethnic category of the Bedouin, a special list of tribes so designated by the British who were given a Bedouin identity and set up in separate electoral districts. So the result is a fragmented electorate, all the better to be manipulated from above by the king. And of course, certain groups like the Circassians are given special relationship to the palace. They become, as King Abdullah I put it, the Ahl or the kin of the palace, and therefore particularly loyal supporters of it. The second uh, approach, following on from the first really, is that cabinet office in Jordan tends to be geographically distributed between the various centers, which we'll come on to in a minute, and the various tribes. And this political system goes together with communal spoil system. And of course, there's then a general set of policies which will always try to divide the original East Bank population of Jordan from the Palestinians who flooded across the river since 1948 and 1944. And I should add here, which I didn't say before, that my focus is going to be heavily on the Transjordanians in explaining the, the political economy of loyalty to the regime, because it's the Transjordanians who have been the majority force within the army and the security forces. And also because we know much less about the role of the Palestinians in the army and security forces, although we have a gentleman in the room who does know something about it within that. So I'm going to focus historically on how did a kind of social and political economy emerge which tied Jordanian tribesmen to the regime. And my start, of course, is going to be a focus on the East Bank. These the districts of Ajroom, Karak, and Ma'an were the only areas which had any great interest to the um, Ottoman regime, which Jordan was under until 1921. And of course, these borders were only set under the British period. You can see they're straight, and therefore very artificial. The most important thing to note in terms of my argument is that they tended to divide the Wadi Sirhan, which was the winter grazing ground for most of the camel herding that who moved the steppe every winter. And therefore, about 12% of the resource base of the original pastures, the nomads, who lived, and peasants who lived in Jordan 
1921 effectively conceded to Saudi Arabia. And this would be important for explaining how the army, uh, how the Bedouin become uh, loyal, loyal soldiers and part of the Praetorian opposition. The rest of Jordan, the districts west of the Hejaz Railway, are all tribally divided. As you go from north to south, you move from an area which is dominated by peasant agriculture, this southwestern bit, northwestern bit, gets a fair amount of rainfall, there's many springs, many orchards, a much higher agricultural surface. And this is dominated really by lineages of largely Fellahin clans, uh, some of whose sheikhs were able to get enough power to intermediate the process of taxation with the Ottoman state. And it's the shadow of the Ottoman state, through most of its rule, tended to go as far as the Zerka River and not to progress into the Balkha district. The Balkha district has a more mixed population. There's a single large urban center, originally a large village in a salt, filled with Fadlahino peasants. Otherwise, it's populated by semi-nomadic groups, most of which were bound in a <coughs> confederation headed by the Adwan tribe, who um, manipulated a diverse coalition uh, opposed at times by other groups like that, bad, but increasingly by camel herders, the Belisahar, who start intruding on the area right through the 19th century. The further south, we have another compact shifdom based around Karak, again very important for generating large numbers of soldiers and loyalists, and here the shift, the, the control of the region is in the hands of the Majali, although it is always disputed by a coalition led by the Palaune and by, um, uh, originally, by such tribes as the Amar or the Bedouin, Bani uh, Hamid, who were in the, in the northwest of, of, of the area. Further south is a more tribal area with islands of settlement and dominated by the Khawiyatab tribe, who, of course, play a big role in the, Hash in the Arab revolt, which ushered the Hashemites out of the uh, Hejaz and onto the Syrian and the Arab stage. So this is the sort of social... Uh, set up which uh, Abdullah I found when he arrived in Jordan in 1921 uh, and it's important to stress that the Hashemites arrived in Jordan the Hashemites arrived in Jordan as a basically a broken dynasty. Abdullah himself had been defeated by Ibn Saud at the Battle of Turaba in 1919. And this effectively opened the way for the Saudis to take over the Hejaz at any point that they wanted to do. This Hejaz, of course, was a thousand-year-old base of the Hashemite family. And the, um, therefore, talk about a, uh, a, a regime-driven process of state building, which you find in much of this literature which focuses on the Hashemite kings, is not uh, really very accurate. What you have instead is a completely artificial polity. It lacked the kind of historic core which you find in Jerusalem and Palestine, Mount Lebanon, or in the larger cities of, of greater Syria. Instead, it's constructed by the British for the aim of maintaining a buffer along the eastern marches of Palestine and providing a uh, corridor of British territory linking uh, Palestine and Baghdad. And of course, this was important for oil pipelines, but also important for the air route to India, 
And this is a time when planes flew low and had to land at every moment, so you needed various landing grounds in the East Bank. Now, as the part of developing this alternative view, I also argue, as I've said before, that the monarchy is sustained by a mandatory compact. Now, it's important to notice that this mandatory compact was not something that evolved naturally or was imposed from above by the British. It was as part of a process of trying to stabilize the uh, area of Transjordan, and this was an area where the hand of the state had always been light, where there'd been a pattern of tribal chaos in the end of uh, World War I. So they had to, although they could build on certain Ottoman, the process of Ottoman reform, kind of seams of stateness laid down before World War I, they also had to build a new form of control. And to do this, they had to do it in the threat first of the Wahhabi Ikhwan. Now, all the accounts which we have, the Wahhabi Ikhwan raid Jordan in 1922 and in 1924. And all the accounts we have of their attacks on the Jordanian tribes indicate a kind of reign of terror being brought to the desert, which at some points seemed likely to compel the Jordanian Bedouin to give their allegiance to themselves. The British, in order to create this buffer, therefore had to co-opt the tribes within them. The other source of popular resistance was local, and it was led by important local tribes, notably the Adwan, the Shreide and Kura, and Ajlun, and it was resistance to taxation. Uh, they mustered a whole series of anti-tax revolts. In the Adwan revolt, the movement actually evolves into a kind of proto-nationalist movement. And by the late 20s, most of these patterns of resistance had come together in a Jordanian National Congress. Now, this National Congress, which set an agenda calling for accountable government, for lighter taxation, which the British took on board in order to stabilize the, the, the rural regime. So there were two major pieces of reform which the British undertook. The first one was a desert control in order to deflect the problem of the Wahhabi of one. Originally, the British thought that they would set up borders which would be lightly policed and they would control by the means of the policies of air control. So they'd rely on the planes of the RAF, armored cars, and a force which was drawn almost entirely from Palestinian and Circassian peasants and was actually officered by imperial forces. The problem, and th these, this uh, force, the Transjordan Frontier Force, would be supported and uh, aided by the kind of prestige of Abdullah and his kinsman, uh, Shakir ibn Zayd, who would be given responsibility for tribal and desert affairs. And a separate set of laws were drawn up for the desert area, where um, tribal law would be the norm, and the role of the Hashemites would be to act as kind of adjudicators between the tribes. The problem was that Ibn Saud tried to push his influence into Syria, where the Anezer Confederation had historical links with his family. He mounted a series of raids spearheaded by the Ikhwan, which in a period of drought and locust attack in the late 80s, brought extremely heavy losses to the Transjordanian Bedouin. Most of the accounts we have from the early 30s show Wahhabi raids pushing these tribes to the edge of famine. And the fear was born in London that hunger would drive the tribes into the hands of Ibn Saud, and they would lose this buffer, which they set up along the eastern borders of Palestine. The fear then was if the Wahhabis arrive at the borders of Palestine, and there were any kind of troubles there, and by then it was quite clear to the British in the late 20s that setting up a Jewish home in Palestine was going to be a fraught and difficult affair, you would have even more instability there. So they then resort to a new uh, 
system of desert control, which was pioneered originally in Iraq <coughs> by John Bagot Blood. And he arrives with a plan to try to bring the tribes themselves into the, into the, into the process of control, to use them as auxiliaries to control the desert area. Originally he planned to recruit largely non-Jordanian Bedouin to do this, but because of the dire situation, because of the fact that the tribes are pushed to the edge of famine, he recruits, in fact, the core of the Arab of the desert patrol from Jordanian tribesmen. And what he does very skillfully during the 1930s, using very minimal resources, is construct a kind of militarized welfare system based around the desert patrol, which rescues these tribesmen from famine and ensures their transformation into supporters of the regime. He then pushes the process a step further by encouraging agro-pastoralism in place of camel nomadism which has the effect of drawing the tribes in from the borders and nearer to the settled zone. So this creates a more easily controllable population and a source of soldiers. And during World War II, the Arab Legion expands enormously, who are inherently loyal to the regime because they're utterly dependent uh, economically on the resources of the Arab, Arab Legion. So this is the real source of the Bedouin loyalty to the regime, not, as is often alleged, the kind of charisma which adheres to a Sharifian uh, ruler and, and, and to the Hashemites there. And, the, and, and, and I think the proof in the pudding is, of course, that there are equally tribal uh, populations in places like Iraq and in places like Hejaz, but they did not provide this automatic support for the Hashemites in that area. The other stabilizing reform was a land reform, which the British originally intended as a kind of privatization of communal land. Most of the land in Transjordan was communal, held under uh, local customary law and tribal norms in the Musha'a system. The British felt that by privatizing it, they would release a kind of agricultural revolution where private property would drive uh, increases in agricultural productivity. This did not come about. But what it did do was it brought the British state in that mandatory state into contact directly with the villagers and the fallahi. So the state became the arbiter of how you get land. You got land through the state rather than through your sheikhs. And by breaking up the various communal tenures, they also weakened the power of local sheikhs who originally had distributed the land in the local village areas. More importantly, the British then instituted a new form of land taxation, which was geared very much to the ability of the peasants and the pacifists to pay. So in good years, they would take the full tax amount, but in bad years, they would, they, they would provide tax remissions. And this went together with a process of public works, based mainly on building imperial uh, lines of communication, which gave the peasantry an extra source of, of, of income and allowed them to stabilize their incomes right through the 1930s, which were periods of drought and, and agricultural retreat. Now, the process was consolidated during World War II because World War II brought a boom in cereal prices. Transjordan at that time had large surpluses of wheat and grain. So the peasantry were able to get larger incomes, pay off their taxes much more easily. They were also able to um, use the new land which had been privatized as collateral to build up mortgages. Now the mortgages, again, could have formed a pressure on peasant incomes, but the British intervened very systematically, notably in 1947, to protect smallholders and to prevent the alienation of lands to, 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 to money lenders. 
because the logic of the British uh, rule was one of stabilization and not of kind of capital accumulation. And so what this meant effectively was that the 1940s were a kind of a golden age for the past peasants and pastors of the of the um, East Bank because this generated levels of wealth and prosperity which they had not known before plus an increasingly important and stable source of income from employment in the Arab region. And the Arab region in this period is of course turned into a linchpin of the British security system right through the Middle East and you have Arab region companies guarding British installations from Iran to Palestine and the decision is taken in the late 40s to begin to expand the military and with it the uh, welfare system which went with it. Now of course matters are shaken by the Nakba in 1948. One important prop of peasant life in Jordan during mandatory times had been the ability to work, to migrate, a kind of circular migration system to the Palestinian coastal plain. Now this is cut off by the Nakba and at the same time you have enormous flows of Palestinian refugees first into the West Bank and then, because of Israeli border wars, the way the borders were set after the armistice, across into the East Bank. Many of these people uh, were completely destitute. Others, of course, were housed by UNRWA. In both cases, they, of course, added to the competition within the labor market, forcing down wages. At a time when many of the Jordanian peasantry had already large mortgages which they could not, which they could only manage by outside work. So there was a squeeze on rural incomes, and it was this squeeze on rural incomes which, in my argument, creates the social base for Transjordanian support for the Jordanian national movement. This was not a purely Palestinian thing, as I usually pictured in modernization theory, where it's embittered Palestinians flowing into the Jordanian political system who create an opposition. It was also a breakdown of the mandatory compact and the emergence of a class of embittered Transjordanians who, um, uh, of course, work to, to, to become members of the Ba'ath Party and also occasionally of the Communist Party and certainly supporters of the Nasser-oriented uh, and rather unfortunately named National Socialist Party, which was a kind of a loose coalition of notables from both banks. And it's this group and this kind of social base which, of course, drives the British eventually from Jordan after the upheaval which uh, occurs in 1955 when the British try to force Jordan into the, to join the Baghdad Pact. But at the same time, the fact that Palestine had been lost had led to redeployment of British forces in the region and to the idea that if you want to confront a Soviet threat coming from the north, you need a force in station in the Levant which is able to deploy quickly to try to block it before other forces are brought. Normally, these forces would have come from the, the kind of network of bases along the Suez Canal. But because of the rise of Israel, you now could no longer move them across. So the decision was take, taken to expand the Arab region very rapidly. It goes from a force of maybe 8,000 strong in the late 1940s to 55,000 strong by the eve of the 1967 war. And of course, what this means in terms of the population of Jordan at the time Transjordanians could not have been more than 700 or 800,000 people. Virtually every village or Bedouin household had someone in the army. And the army is not just a source of employment, it's a source of a whole raft of, of welfare provisions and of services ranging from education to health services. 
So this rebuilds the um, mandatory compact, and it gives King Hussein the powers of patronage to see off the various um, uh, attempts, coup attempts, and, and plots which emerged in the army in this period, mostly inspired by Nasser. He was able to stabilize what I call, or after Samuel Finer, a royal military dictatorship, but initially the dictatorship's very kind of unstable and relies heavily on what Michael Mann would call despotic power. Power is coercive, is um, very oppressive, but in the early 60s, you get a process of populist reform begun by Hazar Nijali, then pursued by Wasfitel, which rationalizes the patrimonial system and begins to bring those members of the Jordanian national movement who were imprisoned during a period of martial law between 1957 to 1959 back into the state orbit and into state employment. And this kind of process of reconciliation, which allows the regime to stabilize in the 1960s and by launching national development projects and by redeploying Hashemite Arabism from a project for uh, pan-Arab unity to one of confrontation with Israel, you're able to allow a kind of hegemony, I believe the Khaldunian alternative, al-Tiham, between the regime and the mass of the East Bankers. And this is what creates the cohesive East Bank base, which really allows King Hussein to survive the upheavals for example, the huge demonstrations which followed the unity talks between Iraq, Syria in, in 1963, and of course the upheavals which followed the 1967 war and the rise of the PLO in, in between 1967 and 1970. And it's a cohesive uh, East Bank uh, dominated army, which of course then defeats the Fidelian in September 1970 and expels them by June 1971, thereby consolidating the power of King Hussein, who who, who emerges as the Zaim of the Jordanian of the leader and the unchallenged leader really of the Jordanian polity as Jordan is integrated into the circuits of oil money which are coming out from the Gulf after the first oil price revolution and he becomes really the linchpin of a monarchy which stabilizes the country. Now, nonetheless, if you look at things in this long-term perspective, you have to think again about many of the kind of um, accepted views of how the regime coalition works within Jordan. First, this idea of the monarchy as a linchpin of state-led, uh, of, of, state uh, of regime-led state building has to be adjusted to allow the role of British tutelage and for the East Bankers, the figures who emerged from the struggles within the army and then carried out these stabilizing reforms in the 1960s. Um, East Bank tribes cannot be treated as simply a, a, as a mass whole, but you need to differentiate them to look at the differences of class in between them, particularly the landlord class which emerged from the British uh, land reforms and then from the, from the small peasant investors who emerged from the land booms which occur in the 1970s. You also need to give attention to the bureaucratic and mercantile elite, which has really been closer to the Hashemites than any of the local um, tribal groupings or which, which have existed before. And you need to focus heavily on the state 
and the military as a source of, of support. Uh, a particular view which has emerged is of this divide between a supposedly East Bank bureaucracy and a Palestinian private sector. The picture is actually far more complex within there. Mm -hmm. So now, how, how does this matter today? I think it matters largely because the 20, the 20 years since 1989, when Jordan ran into debt and was forced to bring in the IMF to kind of structurally adjust the regime, have seen a shift in the pattern of political contention. During the heyday of the Jordanian national movement, the great centers of opposition in Jordan were places like the West Bank and the mixed towns, Amman, Irbid, Zerka, which had large populations of Palestinian refugees. Since 1989, we have a migration of the pattern of political contention, where most of the opposition to the regime moved to small East Bank towns, which in the 50s and the 60s were important uh, sources and key sources of support for the regime. So it's places like Karak, like Ma'an, like Al-Tafila, which are now the real bastions of opposition within Jordan. These are precisely, of course, the areas which have been loyalist strongholds in the 50s and the 60s, and which have supplied most of the forces to the, most of the manpower of the army and the security forces. The problem with this, of course, is that the policies which have been pursued under King Hussein, haltingly, in a kind of politically controlled manner, but under King Abdullah II, who comes to power in 1999, at almost breakneck speed, where you privatize and break up the state sector, and where you also try to transform the army from a large army based on armor and artillery to a smaller, leaner army with a two-tier structure geared to internal security, in, in, to internal security. this leads to an erosion of the Hashemite Compact. So the compact which was established under the mandate and sustained the regime right from the 50s and 60s has eroded over the last 20 years. And it's this erosion, which, in my, in the, which I would argue, has led to the most recent pattern of protest, which again has been focused heavily in the East Bank hinterlands. So it's the erosion of the mandatory compact, which is probably leading to loss of resilience of the Hashemite regime, and in my view, means that the stability of the regime can no longer be guaranteed or assumed so easily as it was 20 years ago, or during that sort of golden moment in King Hussein's career in 1992. Thank you. Thanks, Tarek. This is really wonderful. Uh, 40 minutes trying to really flesh out, I mean, the basis of the historical and sociological basis of the foundation of the monarchy, and a few minutes on, you know, why uh, this particular foundation is aerobic in uh, Tarek's view. And I'm sure you have many questions. We'll try to take as many questions, we'll take four questions at a time. And I hope most of you will take some of the points raised by, by Tarek and we'll, we'll take from that. Just quite, but please, no commentaries. Please. This is really from James Bertrand. I want to ask you about the slightly movement now in Jordan. Is it related to the ancestral conflict between Rahmanism and Hashemites? And one quick second question. I read in the Fusma Arabi that the king had a lot of meetings with the elites in the last few months, meetings at ministers' houses and something like that. Do you know something about it? Thanks. 
take four questions at a time, please. Hi, I'm Zainab, I'm graduate student at Galaxy. I was wondering, um, specifically between 51 and 71, kind of skip, ignored um, the role of foreign aid in the creation and sustain, uh, and sustenance of the regime, and in the, in the enabling um, them to build loyalty amongst the East Bankers, which we now see the military is still the employment in mass. And so I'm wondering why you've done that, when, when, you, when your approach has been... I, I think I forgot to say it, that's the biggest problem. Uh, any questions? Good evening, Tariq. You touched upon various aspects of the Middle East uh, fleetingly. Uh, you have omitted to mention the role of Jordan when they went to, into Iraq in 1941 under Glock Pasha to dispose of uh, Rashid Ali Gilani. Mm -hmm. uh, you have, uh, in, in your uh, uh, expansive presentation, you have uh, not spoken about the role of Jordan in, in uh, perpetrating the sanctions on Iraq when Hussein right. Kamal turned we, we can't up. Cover everything. Just one question, please. Uh, when Hussein Kamal turned up in, in Jordan and was uh, met by, by King Abdul the King Hussein, please, just uh, you have you, uh, the, the whole economy, the whole country is sustained by the Bedouins and it will be sustained by Britain. It has, it has been a, a thorn in the flesh of the Arab countries. We meet right. on the day when the election is taking place in Jordan. They are not democratic. We, we, we they I are making no commentaries. I mean, thank you. Please. Uh, I agree entirely with it. Please. Sorry, a very quick yes. question about demographics. You focused on the Jordanians and these bankers, and yet the biggest threat is the demographics of the thought, which is completely altering the population balance between the Palestinians. Uh, who are now massive in the majority and the old Jordanians, and yet the balance of patronage is still heavily weighted towards the old Jordanian families. Surely that must be a major role. One more question in the first round. Uh, please. It is what I understand that uh, King Hussein of Galau had to advocate to the start of schizophrenia. Do you know anything about his Talal? He was a very brief thing. I don't know about it. Can we okay. So we're going to take as many questions as possible, so if you can be really also uh, quick and critical and concise. Okay, um, there, there was a question about uh, aid and about Jordan's role in the region. And I must apologize, I should have made clear when I talk about a mandatory compact that this comes because of the country's geopolitical centrality in the region. And it's this that provides the aid which sustains the regime and builds this whole social system. When you say the Jordanians played a role, and the suppression of the Gaylan Rubal, that, that's what I meant when I said that Jordan became part of the linchpin of the British security system within there. And presumably King Hussein in the late uh, 1990s when he hosted Hussein Kamil was also uh, working with an, a new imperial power to try to also get aid. I mean, there's a process here of uh, the regime's foreign policy and security policy being geared to receiving aid from the outside. I haven't focused on that because I want to focus on the internal sources of cohesion. And had there not been a process of, uh, of institution building which allowed this aid to diffuse widely to the uh, Bedouin and to the pastoralists, I think the aid would have actually been destabilizing. That's what I meant when I argued that in the 1960s you get these reformist prime ministers who carry out populist policies and rationalize patrimonialism. Part of what they did was redirect the aid which was coming was being captured by members of the elite to the villagers and to the hinterlands 
who provide education, services, and jobs. And of course, the great thing about having, uh, for, for, for the Jordanian elite, of having such a large army relative to the population as a whole, is that the army itself becomes a channel for, of distribution for that. And so, certainly, without aid, the system would not work. But I thought that was pretty obvious. The switch happened in 51 between British... 58, 57. Well, 51 for ESF and 57 for military assistance mm -hmm. under the Eisenhower mm -hmm. government, basically. What I'm trying to say is the, your, the mandatory compact from the way you were presenting it made it sound like it was British support all the way through, whereas... Oh, you mean I've, I've ignored the role of the Americans in supporting which I think them, but I'm sorry. Which I trying to extrapolate history onto what's going to happen next, the role of the Americans. No, sure, yeah, I, sh I should have said this. I mean, that American support replaces British support certainly in 1957, but it's, it's still with an institution designed by the British and along uh, patterns of expenditure which the British had set rather, but rather than the Americans there, within that. Now the other, the other question was about the Salafis and the Wahhabis. I, I don't know of any clear connections uh, between the current Salafis and the Wahhabis, although their ideologies are very similar. Uh, but the Salafis are a very varied, varied group and they're often integrated into local tribal networks. There's actually a very interesting uh, group within Salt, which is one of the places which has sent most fighters to Afghanistan, uh, where uh, the Salafis are integrated local tribal networks and tend to move between tribal mafia and the Salafi sort of politics. So the, the politics are very, very complex, and we don't know enough about them. Large numbers of the Salafis, particularly in places like Zabqa, are of course not Trans-Sudanian, but Palestinian. And this brings me to the question about the Palestinian demographics. Um, the the, the uh, Palestinians were in a majority, a very clear majority, between 1948 and 1967. We don't know much about the demographics after that, because we don't. There have never been. Uh, there's never been a census which distinguishes between the Jordanians and the Palestinians. I think it's probably safe to say now that there is a considerable Palestinian majority, but not all of these Palestinians have full citizenship. Because in 1988, in 1988, when this engagement with the West Bank occurred, they were given two-year passports, which then did not give them a right to vote within elections. So they are there as a demographic majority, but it's very difficult for them to turn this demographic majority into a political majority. Because the security forces and the political activists are still predominantly trans-Judaism. And many of these Palestinians do not necessarily want to stay on the East Bank and claim a bigger share of the East Bank. There are people who want to return to Palestine, have a strong ideology of struggling for Palestine there. So, so far, they have actually not been a decisive force in the politics of the Arab Spring. Their main role is as supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood. Muslim Brotherhood, again, is a complicated group, which although it has a mainly Palestinian base, is also in its ideology, something that transcends both Jordan and Palestinian, although Hamas have a much larger role in it. Up till now, in the Arab Spring, it has not been able to put the numbers in the street to actually threaten the regime. The threat to the regime, in my estimation, comes not simply from the demonstrations you see in the Trans-Jordanian hinterlands, but because these groups are closely connected to circuits in the, in the security forces. And this is where I think there was a gentleman back there uh, who asked the second question about the King's meetings. My understanding uh, from the group that I'm associated with, the King met not with members of the, at the houses of elites, but with members of the opposition. And he's clearly looking uh, for other sources of, of support and maybe for a shift in the kind of base 
of which the regime has in response to the Arab Spring. Uh, the, the shrewder members of the meeting, which I heard the most about, think that he was particularly worried about this report which emerged in the New York Times some time ago about a possible, uh, about some Jordanians favoring Hamza. So he allowed the oppositionists to basically say what they wanted, but was really checking to make sure that they are genuine leftist oppositionists, not people who would then go and conspire with the groups who want to bring Hamza to power. And you had another question, which was... Uh, <laughs> Four more questions. Please. Forgive me for an entirely predictable question. Um, what effect has the conflict in Syria had on Jordanian politics, including the election? Um, um, I, I really know nothing about the election, so I can't tell you that. But his, the, his question is on the effects of the Syrian conflict on Jordan. And what, if anything, has Jordan had as an impact on the conflict in Syria? Please. Two questions. They'll be short. Concerning the erosion, um, just a, I'd like to understand your view. Can we say that neoliberalism has shaken the, the what, what did you call it, the rationalized uh, neo-patrimonialism, and therefore today we're seeing this erosion? How do you see the neoliberalism on one hand with this, I, call, I see it as very embedded neo-patrimonialism. This is one question. Another question is just a clarification. I may have misunderstood it from you. You said in the 40s, the Jordanians, the East Jordanians had the peak of their, like, it was booming for them. No, I said, I said the re the, 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 it was regarded as a golden age it compared golden to what age. went before in the 1930s. Absolutely. And you said that Britain played a role in this flourishment. What was it? Was it a ban? Like, I'm thinking of Palestine, because there, that was another booming, very important phase for the Palestinians in, in Palestine, because there, there was the bank, the British bank, that was giving uh, funds. So was it the same experience in, in Jordan? Yes. Uh, you mentioned the militarization of the uh, welfare system in Jordan and the way that the soft power to maintain the regime. Uh, most of the so-called global war on terror, most of the aid has been going to Iraq and elsewhere. So where is Jordan getting that replacement of aid to sustain its support? Do you think it's um, Saudi Arabia or Iran or other sources? And the second question, if an Arab Spring were to happen in Jordan, who do you think would be the successor of the One more successor. The second round. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, many questions. Toby, one question for Tarek. Please. I'm the master of Jordan. My name is Mazen Hamoud. Now, um, it's not a question, but oh. if you allow me, I have... <laughs> wait, wait, please. No, 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 no. It's not a question, it's a comment. So if you would allow me at one point, I would be very grateful if you give me two or three minutes to say something. Very respectful. One minute and a half or two minutes? Whatever you would allow me, but if you start now, maybe please. later. No, please. Right please. Now. please. Okay. Uh, Dr. Talat, I just wanted to um, make some comments mm -hmm. about about the, I like your approach. I mean, your approach is very scientific, anthropology, you study the society, the historics, the uh, in Jordan, the shiftik there, which is basically a very intelligent approach to any matter, and just not things, take things at a, at a superficial level. So it's, it's very deep. But in the end, you are worried or you are predicting of some kind of an erosion in the Jordanian monarchy. I, 
not in any defense, but I really don't see that um, personally. I wouldn't. No, I mean, now you have two minutes to because, because of telepathy, you say that, well, I think I'm going to tell you as a professor, then you have to be very imaginative also and creative in your thinking. So it goes both ways. So you have to be, you have to have a good imagination. And I have to say this, but it's not that. It's not about imagination. What I can say is that um, that uh, the monarchy in Jordan is, you know, with the challenges. The Arab Spring did not start in Jordan in the year last year or the year before. The Arab Spring in Jordan and our reform process started a long time ago, in 2002 and well before 2002. But maybe it's expedited now. And the reason I'm saying that is our monarchy in Jordan has always been very progressive, and they have always thought for the need of change. They always knew that sharing of power in Jordan cannot remain the same as it was before, that there's been more sharing of power with the people, and this is where we are today. So in my opinion, actually, I would differ in you about the erosion. There are new challenges. There are new ways of how power is shared in the country. But I, in my opinion, the opinion of most Jordanians, most Jordanians, um, you don't know much about elections today, but 60% show up at elections today, which is basically voting for the king's reform process. 60% uh, for until a few hours ago. That's a very strong show of support for the king's vision for the future. We could go on for this for a long time, but I just wanted to draw your attention that I don't think most Jordanians, a major majority of Jordanians, would share their opinion with you. About the king's meetings with the people, I think both of us, as both Jordanians, we both know it's not about Prince Hamza. That's incorrect. And sticking to your scientific approach to Jordan would be a much better way of going about it. I'm sure your members of your family, as well as mine, attended those meetings. And the reason for those meetings were very simple. The king has a vision about the future of Jordan and the future of democracy in Jordan. And he wants to make sure, as we proceed along, that the society, the opposition, and everybody is buying in in this vision. They agree on this approach forward. And this is why, at the end of these different luncheon meetings that we both know about, he came up with those two, so far, documents, which basically culminates into his vision for the future. It's not about the future ruling of Jordan. It's not about Hamza. Hamza, that's the Jordanian constitution requires the king to have his eldest son as the future monarch of Jordan, his son, uh, had, uh, uh, Prince uh, Hussein. It's nothing to do about about the future. The last point I would like to say from your, from your permission as a chair. is about, is about uh, uh, two points. Two things. Can we come back to you? I promise you. Well, honestly, it will be very short. Jordanians are around the king because Jordan is a modern state. It has been built out of nothing, with no money, yet water. That's the legitimacy of the monarchy. And the last thing is a question. June, June 67, we drew in Egypt in the 67 war. We said the Israeli narrative, he didn't say. Oh my God. No, I mean, he, he was I not talking so. at, he, was, he was talking about how. Because we were drew, drawn, we were drawn into it. Yeah, he didn't, and we, say, and he didn't say the king. I mean, so that's it. That, these uh, are my points. Thank you. Thank you. And sorry about. You know, it's okay. Yeah. Thank you for giving so, the time. Thank you for. Can we also respond to you? Well, you yes, know, I, I've actually forgotten most of the points. Which, uh, <laughs> 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 um, there was a question about the 1940s. 
and what the source of Jordan's prosperity was. Uh, I think the main source were, were, were dual. The first was this boom in cereal prices during World War II. Uh, the second was the fact that uh, military construction went on in the country and went on very intensively in Palestine. So therefore, Jordanians could migrate to the coastal plain during the slack season and work on these enterprises, I guess, large ones. Now, when I talk about prosperity, I'm talking about the relative prosperity. It's not that they were very well off or anything else. They were actually very poor peasants. But they were very well off compared to the 1930s, which was a period of harvest failure, drought, locust attack. And by those lights, the 1940s appeared as a, as a, as a great process of, of, of advance. And they appear as a process of advance by the like peasants who basically live on the margins of subsistence and want to get enough money to get their, uh, get enough uh, food and money to get their family through, uh, yeah. through, through, through the system. Um, there was a question on the war on terror and, and the US, where that most of the, the money coming is going to Iraq rather than Jordan. There's a, there's a question about what would be the new sources of aid. Uh, up to now, uh, the Jordanians from the ambassador can correct me from what I've heard in, in Jordan when I was there in December, are actually in the middle of a financial bind. Because the, um, the Americans are only giving them money which is tied directly to certain projects, and the Gulfies have given them money which has to be deposited in the, in the, uh, the central bank, and only used with their say-so. Now, the analysts think there are two options now uh, holding up. And remember, the regime now has a very large uh, economic deficit has a great problem meeting its energy bill. Either they take a more active role within Syria, which is something strongly opposed by the Jordanian <coughs> security establishment, or they open up to Iraq and Iran and try to get some subsidized oil from there. Of course, the Iranian ambassador made a very public offer uh, to provide subsidized uh, support, implicitly subsidized oil from Iraq in return for a role in the building up of, of, of Malta. Question, question on Syria, the impact of the Syrian crisis on Jordan. Um, the and main uh, impact for me is the Syrian crisis. Uh, there is a huge social impact. But the main political impact was that during the Arab Spring, the carnage in Syria uh, kind of slowed the momentum for mobilization. Because people saw the disruption in Syria and compared this to the relative stability which they absolutely used. And so, and then secondly, there was a great divide between the position of the Islamists. Palestinian opposition and the left, who most of them remained supporters of, of Syria. So it slowed the momentum of the opposition and therefore the pressure for reform. Now, I, I'd like to respond actually to the ambassador. But well, I didn't say that monarchy was eroding. I said that the social compact which underpinned the monarchy is what has been eroding. And this is very clear if you look at the uh, figures about poverty, unemployment, and compare them to, say, the situation of the 1970s. Uh, nor did I, um, uh, you then went on to argue that the king had the vision and that he's been pursuing reform systematically since 2002. But why is it taking so long? <laughs> you know, he was in power in 1999, we are now in 2012. Yet there's been very little advance. The current uh, ca uh, parliament, which is going to be elected, no matter how many people participate, is going to be largely composed of tribal candidates and political parties don't really have the space because the king is not allowed the reform which has been demanded by the opposition, which is a large uh, number of seats elected by proportional representation, which would then stimulate a move towards party political organization. So there's not really been a great amount of reform. There's been a big show of reform, 
we've created the Ministry for Political Reform to keep the Americans pleased, but we've done very little. And the history of the Hashemites is the history of autocracy, whether you like it or not. Even in 1963, at the height of the reforms, when a cabinet, which was uh, where, 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 where party political representation was not allowed, voted out Samir Rifat, first Prime Minister inherited from the mandate, the immediate response of King Hussein was to ship them off to Al Jafar and a prison camp in, 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 in the desert where, where opposition was set, and then to fix the following elections. So we've not had a consistent history of democratization, which Jordanians could respond to. Now, I was not talking about the king's meetings with wide numbers of people. I was talking about the specific meeting with a small number of activists drawn from the various East Bank Herat committees. And I'm saying what their impression was. That his main worry was not what sort of reform, how much they criticized him. And they criticized him very openly and in ways which were even according to some of the other participants' rules given his statement. It was that he is generally worried about this Hamza process. And that is actually quite problematic because it means that he fears more intra-elite struggle for a problem coming from within his family than the larger problems which are taking people to the street every week. And he should probably give more attention to these than to worry about what the brother is doing. Uh, you have another one? Yeah, I would like to make a, a response about that very briefly. So reform, yeah, 2002 Saudi reform really goes way beyond that. But as you know, um, and it will take a long time for me to explain basically the reform process and why it has taken such a long time since 2002 until we are today. But what I'm saying is that the elections that we have today is not an end by itself. You are correct. This is not just a show. This is a starting point, but it's an equal living level. We had elections two years ago. It's an election. Yeah. It's an it's an equal level playing field. Where from this point forward, the Jordanian people decide how to take the reform ahead in the way that they want it to be. So basically, we believe in Jordan. Our model is an evolutionary model in terms of reform. It's not a revolutionary model, and we have a right as Jordanians to have that. We don't have to have the drama that other people have. We have to, the right to do it in our way, the Jordanian way, which is, we believe, will become, in the end, a model in the Middle East. We thank you. Uh, four more questions. Another round. Professor Flores, can I come back? I want, no, no, just while, while the slide is not showing, you've indicated the oil, please. Sajan, yes, yes, yes. please, please. You have not mentioned the, the amount of uh, infrastructure that was renewed by us Iraqis from no, 19... I, I, I accept. I accept entirely. No, I, I accept that Iraq... We have, we have been sustaining uh, Jordan yes. since 1988. Yes? Before. Before. And to 2003. We renewed all your all infrastructures, right. all your roads, all your ports, everything. We don't I'm even sorry. get the... Sorry, I'm not disputing this. I think you push these questions to the ambassador, not to me. I'm not employed by the government. We have four questions. This is really. Right, it's not my question. It's the question you missed. And it's about the effect of neoliberal reforms on the Hashemite compact. Now, just to push it across the border to Syria and the work of Raymond Hennibush and others, arguing that the embrace of neoliberalism by the 
new generation of Assad's uh, rulers have, have kind of broken that social compact and, and pushed, shrunk, and in fact alienated the traditional um, uh, communities that supported uh, the Assad regime. I, I guess we are have the the pressures to kind of to open up the to market reforms to shrink the state in Jordan have a, a similar effect in shrinking the, the, the social Please. basis. Thanks, Toby. Please. Mine's just a rather flippant observation that if you stay where you were before, you have peace written across your forehead. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> All of this, sorry. I'm a big opponent yeah. of the peace process. Please. <laughs>
And it's, it's, it's this conflict and the intersection, this conflict with popular discontents, driven by the price spikes of 2008 and by the steady erosion of the, uh, the living standards of the middle mm -hmm. class, which are the real drivers of the Arab Spring. And this occurred, of course, before uh, protests took off in either Tunis or Question the, the neoliberal uh, basically policies. I mean, uh, Toby, it's not just in, in Jordan, in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Syria, in Da'a. It started all in Da'a. This is really the revolt of the poor. I mean, does it really apply to Jordan at all, given the fact that the, the major. I think the revolt started in Jordan in uh, the spring of 2010, which is six months before the Arab there was a dock worker strike in uh, Aqaba. But, but how serious, I'm saying, I mean, it's one thing to say there is a major problem. Uh, has it reached a tipping point? Can it reach a tipping point? What no, I, I, I think the Jordanian case shows very clearly the importance of the communal divisions. Yes. Because there has not been the sort of mass protest which you find in Tunis or Egypt, which are much more unified states than, than, than Jordan is. I mean, there, there, there's a much stronger sense of nationhood. And there isn't this divide between Palestinians and Palestinians. So disunity saves the king. What's absolutely. Mm -hmm. So what you're really saying is that Jordan is different than the rest. I'm saying everywhere. No, of course not. It's different. And I'm not Jordan. 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 I'm just saying that the rhythms of protest in Jordan are quite different. Mm -hmm. There is a similar basic no erosion mind. of a state-centered no. moral economy going on. Peace. Peace. And of fact. Right, like just point of information really follows on from what you're saying. When I think of the, the sort of the Arab Spring movements, I think of these movements being kind of led by youth activism and uh, the sort of human rights type movement, or at least that's the way BBC and CNN presented, and then followed up by the, the dark forces. But I never seem to hear much about these activist movements in, in Jordan. I mean, it, they weren't they were very important. The activists were mostly. Trans-Jordanians from the tribal hinterland who don't speak English and don't uh, <coughs> indulge in this discourse of human rights. They're, they're closely connected to figures in the military and security forces. Uh, there's been a small group of more middle class, often Palestinian origin, uh, activists, youthful who joined. And the Jordanian, the Trans-Jordanians generated their own youth movements, but they're very different from the social groups. I think that the movement in Jordan is much more driven by economic uh, I, I noticed you, you were talking about the internal forces in, in the economy and politics of Jordan rather than uh, any kind of copycat effect. Of, uh, no, I, I think the copycat effect is important, but it doesn't doesn't take <coughs> you very far. I mean, there are, there are basic grievances before people begin to, to, to imitate each other. Uh, may I? I'm sorry, I'm being selfish. I mean, we, we, because we, we have focused a bit on the intra-elite leaders. Is it also possible to say that the cleavages between and among the opposition are as deep and as, as wide? In fact, I, 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 this, I, I, in, in a way, it's a, it's a, provides another source. I mean, I think the great problem in Jordan is that first, a coherent um, non-Islamic opposition has not emerged. You have yes. a very fragmented yes. field. And the Islamists have not <coughs> actually been able to take on the social agenda thrown up by in, in 2010. So really the possibility, the potential for a coalition, a rainbow coalition, along the lines that CB probably does not exist. In, in the last year, it's actually been weakening because most of the activists who are trans today have been turning very strongly against the Islamists, probably egged on by the security service. 
So but the strength, the strength of the Trans-Jordanian opposition in Jordan is not simply its power in the street. In fact, it has such a resonance within the structures of the state. And I think that this is the, uh, and the difference, and maybe, and between uh, the My question to you is that, in the same way that the King King Hussein was able to find ways and means to <coughs> resolve the crisis in the 1950s and 60s, would it be how how can King Abdullah? I mean, what, what are some of the ways and strategies and methods by which the king can really... Uh, in, in, in the early 60s, you had a very thoroughgoing process of reform which combated corruption above all. I mean, 10% of uh, government bureaucrats were actually fired. And King Abdullah so far has been very reluctant to engage in anything similar. But I guess it seems to me in the last few months we have... We have two cases. Yes. There are many other cases. How important these two cases? Very important. One is to do with his uh, husband of his aunt, the other one to do with the ex-head of But there's still a, a lot of files which are not being addressed at all. And, and uh, I think the real problem with the regime is not simply the erosion of this, uh, this, compact. this compact, but also that the king does not seem to have, despite all this talk about vision of the official circle, doesn't have a very clear strategy of bringing new groups into the ruling uh, system. So he did not, for example, pursue a, uh, a, 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 a compromise with the Islamists which would give them the sort of electoral uh, system that they like and expand democracy. He did not either compromise with the East Bank activists and bring to, 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 to account the large number of corrupt figures which they wanted to do. But he seems now, obviously, he's trying to build bridges to some elements of the opposition. He's trying. No, he's, he's building. He's, he, he is testing the waters. Yes. We will have to see whether he now expands the scope for democratic freedoms. We will see where he takes this anti-corruption uh, drive, and we'll see also, more importantly, whether he comes up with a new pattern of economic politics, uh, of economy, and of development policy, which addresses the uneven development of the East Bank and the discontents of these people in the middle. So far, there's no. There's a lot of talk, but not a real science. You really, I mean, I know for, for all of us, you have not given us any kind of a glance of the extended gravity of the socioeconomic crisis. I mean, what are we talking about here? Because this is probably one of the most important challenges facing Jordan. Well, I, I, mean, I, 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 mean, I don't think that you look at this in the absolute. I think you look at, for example, how important groups like uh, people in the military are affected by inflation and by food. So it's clear that middle class people on 600 or 500 dollars a month have a great difficulty. So what's the rate of unemployment in Jordan now? For, I mean, what, what are we don't know. There's an official figure about 14 percent, and some people think it's a part of that. What's the rate of poverty? Again, there's huge dispute. It ranges from 12 to 30 percent. The deficit, what are we talking about? Deficit is very big. What's uh, two billion? There's uh, two, two billion dollars. And more importantly, the debt has expanded yes. from five billion when King Abdullah came to power to twenty-two billion a day. So, so beyond so the capacities so of Jordan. So, so how can the king basically find ways and means around the economic crisis? I don't think he can. He needs to find a new big source of support from somewhere. Everything comes with a with a political price. If he wants to get aid from the Gulf, <coughs> he has to intervene more in Syria. If he wants to find an alternative with Iran, he's going to antagonize the Americans and the Gulf. So he's, he's, he's in a bit of a bind. And this is, where the, this is where the compact becomes very important. Because the fact that he doesn't have a secure base means that any kind of strategies which he undertakes become far more risky. Uh, one more round, please. So we, we, we 
have 10 minutes, so please. Um, you've highlighted the connection between the security establishment and, as I understand it, protest movements sort of in their countries and regions and things like that. Um, how could King Abdullah sell a greater pace of reform and more meaningful reform to the important constituencies of those countries? By pursuing an anti-corruption agenda. That's what they're really concerned about. They don't care very much about having a Western-style democracy. What they care is that corruption is treated and therefore the state patronage system begins to be Even if that embarrassed his own family members? We're going to find out. Will it touch his wife and his wife's family? Is that a realistic course of, course of action point then? Given the, the potential embarrassment? Potentially, uh, he could. Because he, he is actually um, constitutionally about ab above reproach. There's nobody who can bring him to book within the constitution. Is that what you would do if you were king? Is that there? Depends how frightened I am of my wife. I trust me, he is. I am. We all are. What most satisfactional people, please. You mentioned there was a wide ranging anti corruption drive in the 60s. How is the king able to achieve this without undermining? Yes, but, but what, what this anti-corruption drive did was it attacked the figures around the king and the higher reaches of the bureaucracy and then redirected resources to the army and to the villages where the, where the military people came from. And uh, <coughs> one of the uh, devices, the prime minister who undertook it at the time, actually put his own cousin at the top of the list of people who were fired. So it was, it was that, kind of, that kind of thoroughgoing reform. Would you say that that was necessarily different than what's going on now? I beg to differ with how strongly the anti corruption drive is going on now, because it's verging on a witch hunt, really, where it's just the big heads are being put up for slaughter, basically. I mean, mm. not just. Two have, but the biggest heads are not being touched. And there's, there's, there's tons of them. Um, all the big wigs are sitting in jail for the first time. Whether we agree with it or not. No, but look, um, point, the mayor of Amman, the uh, Basim Awadullah, etc., these people are not being brought to book. And these are the people, I mean, it doesn't really matter, it doesn't really matter. You see, the trouble is that I think the real trouble with the corruption... We can't be any people accusing them here. I don't think that we are, we are a court of law here. Well, let me He's already accused three people here by name. He's accused, and there are witnesses here. He accused three people by name. Okay, let, let me explain what I'm doing, can I? No, no, there are witnesses here. You've accused three can people Can I explain by what I'm doing, all right? Now, it really doesn't matter. It really because doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. You accuse three people by name. I didn't accuse corruption. them. I said that there are three people who are viewed as corrupt by the mass of the population. How do you say that publicly? Because this is what people you say. And this is what you and read and on all of the internet. You've tarnished their image. You've tarnished three people's images. What? You've tarnished the image of three well, people. Let them sue me. Let, let me explain the political point. How which can is the you most do that? Can I explain the political point? We're in London, you know, we're not. Not in Jordan, maybe. Huh? We don't do those things, you know. I mean, you don't discover Can I explain the political point? You want to say something? Can I explain the political point I'm being, I'm trying to make? Fawaz, let me just say this. Doctor Fawaz, uh, as a professor and you're a host, he accused three, three people just now. It's, it's not a. They can sue me when I get back to Jordan. Okay. What I'm explaining is this: If you want to have a politically meaningful process which tackles corruption you have to attack 
because people don't believe the regime that there's a lack of credibility you have to attack those pe those people or figures who are believed as corrupt by the people taking to the street and this is who they think are corrupt and they really will not be satisfied unless people like that are brought to book so it's a politically meaningless kind of uh, process if you only bring to book say the former head of the Mukhabarat but don't bring all the other people which people view as being corrupt yeah. and that is that is the political gain which King Abdullah can get this final question and this is not being brought about. Are you, are you done? Uh, please. Please. This is politics, huh? It's not uh, public relations. He, he, he really started saying, I mean, as I understand him, is that people on the streets believe that they are, but he is not himself saying, I have any evidence to, I mean, I, I so it's basically... He publicly. He, in his three people yeah, public, saying you're in your classroom. I've said they consume me when I get back to Jordan. What more do you want to do? Please, please. Go ahead. I don't want to sue you. Please. Uh, what are your thoughts about freedom speech in Jordan compared to countries in the region? I mean, I I'm sorry. What's the question? What that's the our last question, Tarek. So we. What freedom speech in Jordan the past ten years and how has it changed? Is it the best or the worst? And I also think you are safer in Jordan than in Italy because actually the EOD used to sue people for this. But in the past year, in Jordan, everyone has been openly criticizing people in the government from the king downwards and it has been catered in utmost democracy. No one arrested. I mean, there is really, there is something. No, I agree. I, I, think, I think that the last three years have seen a big expansion yeah. in, the, in the scope for... Um, it's a reform, so we have to change it because you have... But I'm not saying there's no reform. I'm, I'm, my, my, my problem is whether the reform is quick enough to deal with this problem. Compared to, uh, to, to Syria? Why compared to Syria? To Iraq? To, uh, I mean, you know, we're better off in Jordan than North Korea, but that doesn't actually deal with the problem in the street. Okay. So, so, I mean, I'm not saying that there is no reform. I'm not saying that Jordan is, you know, a kind of uh, totalitarian dictatorship, which... Uh, what I'm saying is that the pace of reform has not been quick enough to actually deal with these problems in the street, and that the basic social compact, keeping the monarchy stable and strong, is steadily eroding. I have not said anything more than this. Now, there has been actually a problem about freedoms in the last year or so, when they've clamped down on internet sites. You know that the rules have been changed. And if you want to look at the history of freedom of expression over a long period, it's clear that Jordan is not a perfect place. I myself have been a shareholder in two newspapers which have been closed. So you know, we're, we're, not, we're not yet Sweden. What we're talking about is a pace of reform. And the question is whether the king and the group around him can deliver reforms fast enough to stabilize the system or not. Why? And what do you think? Hmm? Do you think they can? Um, I don't know, but I, I think the king has such a large economic problem because of the overhang of debt. It's going to be very, very difficult. I mean, imagine, I mean, th this wonderful discussion. Here you have the ambassador of Jordan, you have another Jordanian, Jordanian debate. This is really, to me, I know, aesthetically shared. It's a great sign that there is a great deal of really uh, political struggle in Jordan. Truth, it's a plus that all of you can really argue and debate so open and so passionately. Uh, this is really speaks volumes about, I, I know, how, how, how Jordan has <laughs> 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 <laughs>
So thank you, thank you. Please join me in thanking Carl.